This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Audibles, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of July 24th, 2023, the last week of season 39. And before we get into the episodes, Emily, how's it going? It's going okay. Currently, things are uneventful. I am a caricature of myself, so I'm going back to Disney World in a week. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, Yes. My oldest graduated from elementary school, so I'm taking just him for a few days. Very nice. Yeah. Sort of also to make up for, we had a Disney World trip that got sort of foiled by arriving there and immediately getting COVID. And then Mm -hmm. we came out of quarantine just in time for our last little tiny bit of Disney World, where we tried to jam in the handful of things we were most excited about while still kind of feeling, you know, COVID fatigued. So we're trying again. We'll see if it goes better this time. Just the two of us. Nice. So that's that's the fun thing that's coming up. How about you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Just keeping on. The kids are back and we are just getting the last of the summer stuff kind of wrapped up the the things that we said at the start of the summer yeah we'll definitely do this summer and now we have Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. basically a week left and we're like oh we should do those things if we're gonna do them so we've got some water park and amusement park and various activities planned coming up and that'll be yeah it'll be good yeah yeah so We have one more week of Jeopardy to talk about, and it began on Monday, July 24th, with the contestants Ian Fouts, a teacher from Camarillo, California, Simona Fine, a graduate student from Great Neck, New York, and Taylor Claggett, a marketing director originally from Chesapeake Beach, Maryland, whose one-day cash winnings total $10,800. We have the Jeopardy round categories, state's highest points. Spacemen and Women, Welcome to Our Fruit Stand, Alphabetically First, Uniform Numbers, and The End Zone with End in Quotation Marks. The $800 level of Uniform Numbers was a triple stumper, which is technically incorrect. The clue is, you won't see any players from this MLB team wearing a single-digit number. They've all been retired, and number eight, twice. Uh, They were going for the Yankees. Taylor guessed what is Cal Ripken, which is not a team. Right. Ian guessed what is three, which is also not a team. (laughs) So, like, even if the clue had been, like, factually correct, they they still wouldn't have gotten what it was asking for. But the single-digit number zero is worn by Adam Ottavino who is a, I believe, a relief pitcher for the Yankees, because the only reason I know that is because he is one of the many capable Rockies who went to a better team. Mm, So Sorry. You know what? The Rockies are just a a minor league team that other teams get to farm. (laughs) It's just the way it goes. I mean, we're at the trade deadline right now, and we just got rid of two good players so that we can Mm -hmm. pick up some more minor league pitchers who might be good in the future, and then we won't have anything to do with them when they get up. Because they'll move along. Well, I mean, yeah. 
It's the leadership. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, this is not a Rockies complaining cast. Okay. As much as I know you want it to be. You know, I am conversant in baseball and I totally understood everything that happened in this conversation. Yep. No, I, I, I did. Know. I did. I did, actually. <laughs> Although it was news to me <laughs> there, that there's a player with the, with jersey number zero on ostensibly my team. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you do know. Now I know. So when you are inevitably watching the Yankees, like you do so much, you'll see Adam on Actually, I don't know if he's still on the Yankees. I think he is. You know. Oh, he oh, he plays for the Mets now. Oh, apparently he'd also played for the Red Sox. So he just and for the Cardinals, he's moved around a bit anyway. Yeah. OK. He does wear a single zero, mm-hmm. but technically so zero has not been retired. Yeah. Zero seems like a weird jersey number to me. It does to me, too. And I think there was a Jeopardy clue not too long ago. Or maybe it was a Learned League. I don't know. I encountered some question not too long ago that asked about zero not being an acceptable number. Yeah. But apparently it is. Yeah, I think I encountered that on Learned League. The whole fruit yeah. stand category was good, I thought. It was sort of funny to me that the $1,000 level was a clue about apples. <laughs> and we had, yeah. you know, more obscure fruits at the lower levels but but you know clued in an easier way right so the 200 a traditional part of muslim diets during ramadan these palm fruits are known as tamuru in arabic those are dates but then up at the thousand try a pink lady also known as crips pink the first variety of this fruit to be trademarked that was apple at the thousand dollar level something about that i just found enjoyable Mm -hmm. to have dates and passion fruits at the at the um at the, at the low lower levels. levels. Yeah. And then, and then a very obscure apple at the $1,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daily double number one is in alphabetically first at the $800 level. Pick number 16. Taylor uncovers it. He's at 2,600. Everybody's spaced out by 200. Simone is at 2,400. Ian's at 2,200. He wagers 2,300. So we're going to head into odd numbers either way. And Yay. he gets the clue of the five books of the Pentateuch. It's written in the form of a farewell address by Moses. And I don't know if he figures out which one is alphabetically first or if he recognizes the description. But either way, he knows that that's Deuteronomy. People making these odd value wagers at us. <laughs> right. Yeah. 2300, my dude. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Taylor's at 7,300, Simone is at 3,200, Ian's at 2,400. And the double Jeopardy categories are musical works, my would-be VP, you name the presidential candidate, starts with three consonants, international books, hostile, and makeovers. Hostile, like a low-cost youth travel house thing not hostile mm. like hostile yeah but hostile makeovers was a cute pair of category titles yes i especially enjoyed the 400 dollars clue of makeovers a few things added to cars on this show hosted by x to the z exhibit a fish tank a fireplace a Sistine chapel like ceiling that's pimp my ride taylor got that yeah mtv was and i guess 
continues to be just an enigma, an, an utter mystery to me as to the things that they come up with and air. And, you know, I will say I did enjoy watching Pimp My Ride. I don't know why I enjoyed it, but I watched that show <laughs> more than once. Yeah, I've watched little bits of Pimp My Ride. Probably not enough to to justify the frequency with which I use the like, yo dog, I heard you like memes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The entire musical works category was triple stumpers. Oh, yes, it was. Oh, no. Most, mostly unattempted. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm OK with. Actually, I feel like these were for the most part. I thought that these were actually fairly deep cuts for Jeopardy. Yeah. Four hundred dollar clue. Thea Musgrave's first commissioned work in 1953 was Sweeta Sangs. I can't do Scottish words for a festival in this her native country. No one went for Scotland. I could see that, even though the title kind of points you there. Yeah. Um, I don't know the piece at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see you not necessarily risking it. The 81739 Saul is one of this composer's most dramatic oratorios. Now, it's like second level for you if you're studying for Jeopardy. You'd have to kind of go deeper than the surface level to be like, okay, oratorios... And 1739 should point me to Handel, because I I would not expect anybody to know Saul. Yeah. You should recognize the Hallelujah Chorus from Messiah. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it for what you should probably be able to recognize just off the top of your head for Handel's music, in my opinion, if you're not a classical musician. Yeah. So that one wasn't terribly surprising. And that was only the $800 level. And then the $1,200, Ferdy Grofa called for coconut shells to imitate the clip clopping of a burrow on the trail in this suite. And that's the Grand Canyon suite. So you could kind of guess from the clue if you know that it is typical to take a burrow along the trail of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. But if you don't know that the Grand Canyon suite is a thing, then you're probably not going to risk it. So. Yeah, and then the $2,000, Taylor knew it but missed it because it was pictures at, at an exhibition, and he said, what is pictures at the exhibition? Yeah. That's a the title. rough mess. Mm-hmm. And I guess since I'm talking about it, I'll just jump to Daily Double number two, which was uh, the $1,600 level. Pick number seven, Taylor found it. He's at 15700 Simona is at 3200 Ian's at 2400 so he's way out there. He wagers only 100 which is fair given... <laughs> Um, actually, this is the first one they find in the category, but apparently he's not too confident in the category. He gets the clue. One of Rachmaninoff's best known works is his Rhapsody on a theme of this Italian violin virtuoso. And he guesses who is Stradivarius. Not a bad guess. Italian name to associate with, with violins, but that's Paganini. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are not a whole lot of historical performers that you would be expected to know. Right. Paganini comes immediately to mind and like I'm hard pressed to think of really any other instrumentalists who who should I be thinking of before the 20th century not many as far as violin players none Paganini is the one you should really know like Vivaldi was also a well-known violin player Mm -hmm. so I guess you could like talk about that not not really 
for violin players like for pianists chopin and liszt were well mm-hmm. known as piano players but so is like beethoven and mozart were also known as piano players bach was like the best organist of his time but like they're they're also associated with the music they wrote so as far as just being like a rock star performer it didn't really start to happen until the 19th century and even then we don't get that many you get paganini you get list chopin that's basically yeah so yeah wait did paganini also compose because all the others also are known as composers right yeah paganini he he did compose so like okay. the, the rhapsody on a theme of paganini is like oh right oh it's yep. based on one of his themes yes got it but he was one of the first to be known more as mm. a performer than a composer yeah Daily Double number three is in my would-be VP. This one also had quite a few triple stumpers. They did get the $400 level, but the $1,600 level is where we find this one. Taylor finds this one as well. He finds it at pick number 18. And at this point, he's at 16800 with Simona at 1200 and Ian at 6400 So he's found all three. He wagers just 100 on... This one, they've uncovered a couple of these so far, and and nobody's attempted a guess in this category yet, so fair enough. And he gets the clue, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., running with a then-veep himself. Nixon's the answer here, and he he can't come up with anything. And something about... My brain went way earlier. Something about... That name seems older. It does. Yeah. Yeah. I also did too. I was, I, he said Nixon. I was like, whoa. I, I definitely went 19th century for sure. Yeah. So, so Taylor found all three daily doubles and overall net positive. Yeah. Uh, at the end and, of the. I mean, despite missing two of them, wagered low on the ones that he wasn't confident on. So, yeah. you know. It worked out. Yeah, it worked out. out. Right. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, he's in a lock position at 17,500. Simona is at 4,000. Ian is at 6,800. Final Jeopardy category is African Geography, and the clue is the only country in Africa with Spanish as an official language. It lies mostly between one and two degrees north latitude. Simona wrote, what is Senegal? And that is incorrect. She wagered 2,500. Ian wrote, what is Sierra Leone? That's also incorrect. Wagered 1,300. And Taylor got it correct with what is Equatorial Guinea? looking at the clue there with the degrees latitude, wagered 3,500, so went up to 21,000. I thought Cape Verde also in Spanish, but I was, I guess I was incorrect, but also that's much farther north. Official language, Portuguese. Portuguese, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought Morocco had Spanish as an official language, but I guess not. Hmm. Uh, So that brings us to Tuesday, where we have the contestants Julie Sisson, a library circulation assistant from Everett, Washington, Andrew Knowles, a psychologist resident from Portland, Oregon, and Taylor Claggett, a marketing director originally from Chesapeake Beach, Maryland, whose two-day cash winnings total 31,800. And the Jeopardy Run categories are Just Googly It. That can be a Greek letter. The OED describes the animal. Rhyme the time. Something's Rotten, and in Denmark. Just googly it. It had googly eyes. It did. Googly eyes on all kinds of things. 
Except there was one where they didn't add googly eyes. The guy just has googly because googly they didn't eyes. Mean to. Yeah, here's the brilliant Marty Feldman who played Igor in this 1974 classic film comedy and we haven't done a thing to the picture andrew tried was bride of frankenstein he's on the right track julie gets it correct with young frankenstein and then then ken throws in or frankenstein Mm -hmm. which is another you know joke from the movie Mm -hmm. yeah it's classic yeah rotten tomatoes has been around for 25 years quarter century it makes no sense. Yeah, no, none. There were websites in the 90s? Unbelievable. There were a couple of kind of stretches, I thought, and that can be a Greek letter. I guess the both of the ones that I was slightly dubious about, I guess, were around like transliterated Asian languages mm-hmm. and connecting them to Greek letters that we also transliterate in the same way, <laughs> right? $600 that level this name of china's president since 2013 is spelled the same way as the greek letter uh is she xi it's not because it's spelled in chinese right and then it's the greek letter is spelled in greek <laughs> right so. yes <laughs> yeah so i was like oh, I, don't, I don't know i mean i see where you're going but i don't know about that similarly with the thousand dollar level eastern philosophy calls this a life force some also spell it with a q but we're going with the greek letter style and andrew got that one it's chi both of those i was like mm, i don't know like it, it's two levels of transliteration right? right like we translate these two things from other alphabets the same way right it's like i see what you're i see what you're getting at we're able to get to the answer you're looking for but yeah yeah it took a bit of a departure we get the first daily double in that category this one's a bit more clear it's at the 800 level taylor also uncovers it he's at 1800 andrew's at 1600 julie's at 400 that's it all and the clue is instead of the end the beginning this luxury watch brand traces its roots back to 1848 in the Swiss village, Le Chaux de Fonds. And he gets it correct with what is Omega. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Taylor is in the lead at 6,200, Andrew's at 4,400, Julie's at 3,000. Double Jeopardy categories are state the 19th century senator. Somebody wrote that. This American Lake, Kiss and Tell, Writer Directors, and The Idioms Go that away which were all directional, sort of. Yeah. Idioms. Mm-hmm. It was fun seeing Julie think at the last second to ring in of the $1,600 level. There's a member of genus Corvus in this phrase that means in a straight line. That is, as the crow flies. Everyone was kind of standing there waiting for the ignorance tone. <laughs> if you've seen that particular webcomic. And then Julie goes, oh, and like <laughs> rings her buzzer. It was a fun fun little moment mm-hmm. the $1,600 level of kiss and tell in Genesis 29 on first meeting his beloved Rachel he kissed her and lifted up his voice and wept Andrew tried who is Isaac turned into a triple stumper it is as Ken notes Isaac's son Jacob I don't know what proportion of our audience are churchgoers but people who are going to churches where they follow the the lectionary the kind of calendar of bible readings that that is shared by a bunch of different denominations um we're all hearing jacob these past couple weeks stories about jacob 
So mm. I was just writing about Jacob and Rachel and Leah, and then it was on Jeopardy. Nice. Yeah. Daily Double number two is pick number two in the round. It's in Somebody Wrote That at the $1,600 level. Julie finds it. She is at 4200 with Taylor at 6200 and Andrew at 4400 She wagers 4000 and she gets the clue, I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. And she goes for the wrong author. I guess is Wright, Richard Wright. But the invi- this is Invisible Man uh, by Ellison, who we talked about, you talked about recently. Yeah. Yeah. And daily double number three is in This American Lake at the $1,600 level. Pick number six, so we find them both early. Taylor gets this one. He's at 9000 Andrew's at 3600 and Julia's down to 2000 He wages 2300 Gets the clue, most of the length of this French-named lake separates New York and Vermont. And he gets correct with what is Lake Champlain. If you're trying to go to Vermont from New York and you're driving up New York, it's important to take a right before you get to Lake Champlain. (laughs) Because if you forget or your GPS goes out in that particular area and you're like, I'll just go straight until the GPS comes back on, then you have to take a ferry across and it's kind of a pain. And yeah, (laughs) ask me how I know. Anyway, we when at the end of the double jeopardy round, Taylor's at 9,700, Andrew's at 6,400, Julia's at 8,200. And the final Jeopardy category is compound word origins. I like that category title. That that sounded promising to me. Mm-hmm. The clue is this compound word meant an astronomical object of exceptional brightness in 1910. It was soon applied to actors and athletes. My kids figured this one out, which was fun to see. Andrew got it correct with what is superstar. He wagered 301 putting him at 6701. Julie also correctly responded what is superstar with a $3,010 wager. And Taylor only came up with what is star. Didn't get the compound compound. part. And cover bet and a bit of 8,722 drops him to 978, which means we have a new champion. Julie wins this one. So that brings us to Wednesday when we have the contestants Alex Mueller, a policy analyst from Oakland, California, Lucas Partridge, a school counselor from Las Vegas, Nevada, and Julie Sisson, a library circulation assistant from Everett, Washington, who just won $11,210. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Crooks, Recent TV Shows by Episode Title, All Kinds of Literature, World of Religion, I'm Blue, and da or ba or d, each of those in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Those last two categories being a reference to the weird kind of electronic pop song of my youth. Yes, the classic, which has made a resurgence with. Oh, has it? Well, with with Avatar movies coming out. Yes. Oh, fair enough. Okay. And also kids these days are like into stuff from our youth. Like I had students who were like, mister, have you heard Blink-182? And I'm like, what? (laughs) Have I heard Blink-182? I I was born in it. (laughs) Friend, when I was your age, we didn't have streaming services. We had a disc man. 
and yeah. a limited number of CDs that you could have with you at any given time. So like, <laughs> yeah. And we had to plug our headphones into it. Yeah. Could I sing you every word of certain <laughs> Blink-182 albums? I could. I could. Mm-hmm. Oh. oh, they're into Blink-182. Are they like yeah, ironically it... into things from our generation? No. no, I mean, and not exclusively, like obviously plenty of like recent and current, you know, culture <laughs> stuff that they like. But but no, I ha- I've had a number of students who are like genuinely into the music of like the early 2000s. Yeah. That's good. They should be. It's good music. Yeah. I liked the recent TV shows by episode title. Had a miss and a rebound at the $400 level. Chapter 13, The Jedi. Lucas tried What is Obi-Wan. That's the the new show, right? Is there a new Star Wars show? There are... I mean, Obi-Wan was new last year, last summer. Okay, last... I'm not keeping up with things, like... (laughs) Andor, I think, is more recent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Obi-Wan only had six episodes, though, so chapter 13 Mm -hmm. doesn't work. Yeah. But that is... Yeah, they're going for... Yeah, they're going for the Mandalorian. Yeah. I keep meaning to watch Bridgerton, but I haven't gotten to it yet. But Mm. if you have, like passing familiarity with the Bridgerton fandom, right? At the $800 level, Art of the Swoon, capital R Rake, and the Viscount Who Loved Me. Those are obviously Bridgerton titles. You don't need to have watched the show to get that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lucas did get it. Yeah. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in World of Religion at the $800 level. Pick number 10. Alex finds it. She is at a thousand with Julia at twelve hundred and Lucas at eight hundred. She makes it a true daily double and gets the clue from the Arabic for struggle. This word can mean a personal effort against sin or a holy war in defense of Islam. And she gets it correct. It is jihad. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Julia's at twenty eight hundred, Lucas is at five thousand, Alex is at seventy six hundred, and the double Jeopardy categories are brace for landing dual biographies, physics, taking stock, long movies, and from the French. Long movies was actually about long movies. Yeah. Not not some kind of pun. Mm-hmm. So yeah, $1,200 clue. A 1962 review for this Best Picture winner called it a camel opera that tends to run down rather badly into its third hour. And yet <laughs> it won Best Picture. That's Lawrence of Arabia. Julie got it. Yeah. You know what long movie we didn't mention in this category is Ben-Hur. Shocking. (laughs) I I thought it was shocking that we didn't mention Ben-Hur. Jeopardy writers don't miss an opportunity. Maybe it was. And and they shouldn't. (laughs) Maybe it was. (laughs) Yeah. We had a triple stumper in the dual biographies category at the $1,600 level that I talked about a while ago. Samantha Morris wrote a book about Lucrezia Borgia and this brother whom Machiavelli admired. And that is Cesare, mm-hmm. which I guess, like, I don't know. I, I, I could understand you not necessarily remembering it because, like, Rodrigo was the pope. So he was in, you know, he was the patriarch. So he's the one to remember the most. But yeah, brush up on your Borgias. They're not yeah. like they're not like the Medici who have like multiple generations of important people that you need to know necessarily like. The Borgias, it was pretty much like Rodrigo and his kids. And that was kind of their heyday. And then they 
sort of stopped being all that important. Yeah. So they're only a handful for you to to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel Paterno Mahler was a guest mm-hmm. a while back on the podcast and pointed out on, on social media some problems with the $1,200 level of physics. Gustav Kirchhoff showed that this travels at light speed, so a circuit connecting a motor to a switch will start the motor fast. Alex rang in and then decided not to respond after all. They were looking for electric current. I am not a physicist. I have taken some physics, and I think even if something abstractly can travel at the speed of light, like once you get actual wires and like physical stuff involved, that has an impact. But also, apparently, I, I don't know. There, there, are, there may be other scientific layers to that. Anyway, per at least one physicist, fact checking could have been stronger on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the dual biographies category at the twelve hundred dollar level. Alex finds it. She is at eleven thousand two hundred. Julie's at fifty two hundred. Luke is at a, is at fifteen thousand eight hundred. These are some high scores. She wagers four thousand and gets a clue. In this book, with the same title as a Shakespeare play, Adrian Goldsworthy says the second person was quote not that important. Arch. And Alex guesses what is Romeo and Juliet, but that is incorrect. It is Antony and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is at the $1,600 level of physics. Pick number 29, second to last clue in the round. Lucas finds this one. He's at 18,200 with Juliet 3,200 and Alex at 6,000. He needs to not risk his lock here. And mm. he doesn't. <laughs> he wagers just 100. There's just 2,000 left on the board. So like... If he keeps his wager small enough, then it, he will remain impossible to catch, even if somebody else gets that two thousand. So, I think that I think that that locks the game for him. And then he gets the clue presented by Spiros Michalakis. <laughs> Who knows? I don't remember how to pronounce this person's name. Spiros Michalakis presents the clue. A quantum is basically a small and defined unit of energy. This is the term for a light quantum, also called the quantum of the electromagnetic field. He tries what is a packet, and they are looking for a photon. So he loses the 100, but that's fine. And then he's the one who gets that $2,000 level clue mm-hmm. after all. So. so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Lucas is in lock position at 20,100. Alex is at 6,000. Julie's at 3,200. The final Jeopardy category is opera source material. And the clue, Henri Merger, 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 Henri Merger, who was broke and lived in a freezing attic apartment in Paris, wrote the source material for this 1896 opera. Uh, and they all got it. This is one of the one of the operas to know. Uh, it's La Boheme. Julie wagered three hundred ninety dollars. Alex wagered $100, and Lucas wagered nothing. Uh, So they all stay in the same positions, and Lucas wins. Moving Mm -hmm. on. Yeah. So on Thursday, the contestants are Zach Razavi, a palliative physician from St. Paul, Minnesota, Alicia Schaffer, a physician from Indianapolis, Indiana, and Lucas Partridge, a school counselor from Las Vegas, Nevada, who just won 20100 bucks. And the Jeopardy round categories are Historic Americans, Books of the Old Testament, 
Triple Time, The Forbes 2023 Billionaires, Retitled Movie Adaptations, and Anatomical Anagrams. You have to find the word in the clue that needs to be unscrambled. I thought that one was a pretty accessible anagram category. Yeah. The clues pointed to the correct answer, even if you couldn't necessarily find the anagram. So mm-hmm. that was that was helpful. Yeah. We had the books of the Old Testament category. And then next to that in triple time, we had the $800 level as told in Genesis. These are the three sons of Noah. Those are Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Uh, nobody attempted that one. It was a triple stumper. Mm-hmm. Yes. But Lucas knew that the song that's been viewed as an allegory for of God's love for his chosen people and also as simply some steamy love poetry was Song of Solomon. Alicia knew that the book that tells the story of a Moabite widow who was an ancestor of King David is the book of Ruth. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Um, the $400 level of books of the Old Testament was a triple stumper. One of the two middle verses of the King James Bible is this book. 103 verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Ken read that as chapter 103 verse 2. I mean, you can refer to those as chapters, but when we're in Psalms, like we call it Psalm 103, like each chapter is a discrete poem, you know, poem song thing, Psalm. (laughs) I think that had I been reading, I think I would have read it as this book, 103 verse 2. Um, Although maybe that gives an extra clue. Anyway, there are 150 Psalms. That is far more than the number of chapters in any other book of the Bible. The highest any other chapter count goes is maybe Isaiah has 66. I'm not sure there's another one with more than 66. So Mm. even if you don't know the quote, just when the numbers get that high, it's going to be a Psalm. Daily double number one is in Historic Americans. At the $800 level, Lucas finds it. He's at $3,200. Alicia's at $1,200. Zach's at $200. Uh, Uager's $2,000. Gets the clue. Soon after he lost his Supreme Court case, this enslaved American was emancipated by the son of his first owner. And he gets it correct with, who is Dred Scott? I didn't know that. Yeah, me neither. But, I mean, I guess that's good. I guess. Better if I he guess. just won the case. You're right. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Ugh. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Lucas is in the lead at 5,200. Alicia is at 2,400. Zach is at 1,200. Double Jeopardy categories are World Cities. Playtime starts with H-I in quotation marks. The Bar Mitzvah Boy. That song slays and here be pirates. They had some trouble with the pirates category. They got the $2,000 clue, which let's raise a a glass of branded rum to this captain, a Welsh buccaneer who somehow ended up as a deputy governor. It's Captain Morgan, mm-hmm. which you probably know from the rum. Yep. They got Captain Hook, of course, at the $400 level. But the $800 level, Andrew Jackson called this French pirate one of the ablest men in the Battle of New Orleans as Jean Lafitte, or the Swamp Fox, an important figure during the War of 1812. Good for Alicia on the $1,200 level of playtime. This is This is something that I always hesitate on and I think would probably get wrong most of the time. This alliterative three-word Shakespeare comedy begins with four friends swearing off women and romance. Alicia gets it. It is love's labors lost. And it does have an S after after love and after labor. 
and I know that I have to remember the actual title of the play, but I never can. Mm. But Alicia does. So, yeah, loves Lieber's Lost. I don't think I've ever seen that one. I have not seen it either. I don't know if it would help me remember. Yeah. And we had a Joan of Arc clue at the $800 level, just above that. Plays by Jean Ennui include Antigone, Beckett, and the Lark, about this 15th century French heroine, who is, of course, Joan of Arc, who wow. I did a deep dive on a while back. I didn't know that Antigone and Beckett were about Joan of Arc, too. I'm just kidding. They're not. No, they're not. And that same category is where we find Daily Double number two at the $1,600 level. Pick number 13. Alicia finds it. She's at 8,800 with Lucas at 8,000 and Zach at 2,000. And she wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. The play Mrs. Warren's Profession by this Irishman was considered so scandalous, it was banned for years. She tries who is Oscar Wilde, but it's George Bernard Shaw. So she drops down a little bit. Yep, the other one. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of that time. Uh, and Daily Devil number three is in World Cities at the $2,000 level. Pick number 15, so just a couple later. Alicia also finds this one. She's at 6,800. Lucas is at 8,000. Zach is at 2,000. Same, basically, same situation. She wagers 1,800. Gets a clue. Today, an art school stands at the place in this huge metropolis where Rudyard Kipling was born in 1865. And she gets that correct with what is Mumbai. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Lucas is in a slim lead with 13,600. Alicia's at 11,000. Zach is at 2,000. And the final Jeopardy category is Fighting Forces. With the clue formed in 1831 to help with the conquest of Algeria, its ranks have included Germans, Turks, and Chinese. They all got this one correct. What is the French Foreign Legion? Zach wagered everything but 14 dollars which brings him up to 39.86 alicia wagered 6999 putting her at 17999 and lucas wagered 8500 100 more than or 99 more than a cover bet which brings him up to 22100 and gives him his second win so that moves us on to friday with the contestants Monica Chavez, a career education librarian from Alhambra, California, Sharon Bishop, a high school Spanish teacher from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and Lucas Partridge, a school counselor from Las Vegas, Nevada, whose two-day cash winnings total $42,200. Yeah, got a bunch of educators here. Mm-hmm. The Jeopardy round categories are talking about women, working words, breeds of sheep, messing with Texas, it gets old and real fast. The $400 clue there of real fast. Sifan Hassan holds the women's world record in this track event. Four minutes, 12.33 seconds. Sharon guess what's the 50-yard dash. That's the mile, which mm-hmm. just a little bit over four minutes makes sense given a recent deep dive. Yeah. But that record was broken between taping, taping and airing. The world record for women is now 4 minutes, 7.64 seconds by Faith Kipian. Yeah, that is not broken by a small amount, right? No, like, no that's a five, nearly five second margin. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. 
Sharon had some like initial jitters and it was nice to see her recover. Very first question, messing with Texas at the $200 level in 2014, Decatur, Texas rescheduled this holiday back to the 30th as it conflicted with Friday night high school football. And Sharon was the first to ring in on the first clue and then froze up and said, what is football? Which was right, you know, right there at the clue. And then Lucas got the rebound with Halloween. And I was like, oh no, oh, Sharon, (laughs) because you can really spook yourself like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She did get it back started ringing in and and picking up some money so it didn't it didn't throw her off yeah she gets in on clues number three and four makes her money back and starts getting back on track so yeah yeah and and to be fair in her defense football is basically a holiday for texas (laughs) yes i i thought it was funny seeing them like basically leave breeds of sheep to the very last like we don't know what's going on over there Right. It's like you see that category, you start listing. All right. How many breeds of sheep do I know? Precisely zero. Yep. Great. (laughs) But of course, the clues were more they were talking about breeds of sheep, but they didn't you didn't need to provide necessarily the breed of sheep. Although the thousand dollar clue originally a Spanish breed, it first came to Australia in 1797 and changed that country's economy forever. That is the Merino, which I realize I did know. Yes. That's the the one that I think we all hear. Daily Double number one is in working words at the $600 level. Pick number 11. Lucas finds it. He's at 2400 with Sharon at 400 and Monica at 1400 He makes it a true Daily Double. And he gets the clue referring to writers and others who are self-employed and work job to job. It was first used of mercenary knights. He can't come up with anything. He tries for hire, but they're looking for freelance, which I remember thinking the term freelance made no sense uh, when I was a kid. And then and then coming across this fact and be like, oh, OK, I see the origin, although, you know, still using that term is a bit wild. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So he drops to zero, but that's, you know, it's it's early in, in the Jeopardy round, so all good. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, he has made it back up to a slim lead with 5,200, Sharon at 5,000, and Monica at 1,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are on the money, uh, you name the person pictured on current U.S. bills, British literature, national anthems, if you know what's good for you, actors, and CC me with CC in quotation marks. I've always enjoyed the title. This is a triple stumper, the $1,600 level of CC me. Behold the man of suffering Christ in the painting called this seen here, which is Ece Homo mm-hmm. with E-C-C-E is how it fits the category. I've just always enjoyed that title. Behold the man. Yeah. Behold the man. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes I say something like that when I'm trying to be like, look at this dude. <laughs> Behold the man. Nobody gets it. It's a deep, deep pull. Yeah. Eche Homo is also the title of that like catastrophically poorly restored mm-hmm. painting. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen a picture of that. I'm pretty <laughs> sure we've talked about it on the yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They did they did pretty well with the on the money category, except that like the two most obvious ones that the writers used kind of somewhat obscure clues for and those were triple stumpers the $800 level he was the first to breed mules in America on his farm Monica tried to his Jackson they're looking for George Washington here and the $2,000 level he died on April 15th now I know I should have gotten it but I was like tax day 
who is associated with taxes? <laughs> no, no, no. You just there there aren't that many presidents who's you need to know the date of their death. Right. Most of them did not die while president. Yep. Yeah. So Abraham Lincoln assassinated on April 14th, but like died on April 15th. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the national anthems category at the $1,600 level. I enjoyed this category. All right. Yeah. Um, Sharon finds it. She is at 13,400. Lucas is at 9,600. Monica's at 1,200. She wagers 2,000. This is pick number 22, so we're getting pretty late in the game. And she gets a clue. This anthem was made official in a decree of July 14th, 1795. And she gets it correct with what is the Marseilles. And Daily Double number three is the second to last pick of the round in British literature at the $1,600 level. Sharon finds this one as well. At this point, she is at 19000 with Lucas at 10000 and Monica at 1200 There's just $2,000 left on the board. And she wagers 2000 and gets the clue. In the 1850s, she published the book-length love poem, Aurora Lee. She tries who is Shelley. That's not correct. It's Elizabeth Barrett Browning. So she drops down a little bit. Hmm. And then Lucas yeah. picks up that last 2000 Yeah. And so... Because of that kind of swing there, going into Final Jeopardy, Lucas is at 12,000, Sharon is at 17,000, and Monica is at 1,200. So it's not a lock game. And we get the Final Jeopardy category, Word Origins. And the clue, theories on the origin of this, a style of journalism, include Cajun slang for unhinged jazz and Boston slang for a person on a bender. Uh, Monica wrote what is gotcha. Not a bad guess, but that's mm -hmm. incorrect. Wagered all of it, so it drops to zero. Uh, Lucas got it correct with what is gonzo. Gonzo journalism. Uh, and he wagered everything, which is larger than suggested. But he goes mm -hmm. up to 24,000. And Sharon missed it with what is mudslinging. Wagered 7,001, which is a cover bet. But that means that Lucas wins his third game. Oh, yeah. And that will also mean that Lucas gets a big long break before coming back because this is the end of the season. Yes. Yeah. And there's been some noise. Should we should we talk about? Sure. Yeah. So there's been some chatter, some coverage about what's going to happen with the postseason and with season 40. Ray Lalonde, who hopefully you remember, he was a major champion. 13 games. Is that right? Yeah. This season kind of proactively posted on Reddit stating that there had been some rumors that Jeopardy would start filming with recycled material, you know, with the writer's strike ongoing. And he stated that he is not going to cross the picket line, that if they film the Tournament of Champions while the writer's strike is ongoing using recycled material, he will not participate and a number of other Tournament of Champions qualifiers, five out of the top six last I heard, said the same thing, joined him, which, good for them. As they continued adding their voices, it became clear, at least to me, that the Tournament of Champions was not going to tape during the writer's strike. Hopefully it will tape eventually. You know, I think being the first, one of the first couple people, you're risking that it'll tape and you just won't be in it, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> 
which is hard. <laughs> yeah. So I, I appreciate the, the principled stand that they're taking. Jeopardy seems to have indicated they're not going to tape the postseason, but that they are going to start taping new episodes. Yeah, it seems like their plan is to still move forward. Yeah. Their statement seemed to focus on the idea that for a tournament, you really need new material because you want to give, you know, great, fresh new material to your very best contestants. And like, that is not, that's not what Ray was about. No, like you're, yeah, it's like totally missing the point. The point is, yeah, you're, you're asking people to come to cross a picket line and you yeah. are intending to continue doing this thing rather than addressing the concerns of the people who are striking. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Jeopardy by itself cannot address the concerns of the people who are striking. But I think, you know, I wish they wouldn't put people in a position of having to cross the picket line to take the opportunity to be on Jeopardy. And also, I'm curious what their plan is exactly with creating these recycled material games. Are they going to just take games whole cloth from the past and just use them verbatim? Because if they're doing any clue selection you know, compiling, if they're retitling categories, if they're having to edit, like to me, all of those are writing tasks that the writers should be doing. Yeah. And sure, the writers generated the words that appear, you know, once the clue is revealed, but also like the process of putting the game together is a writing task, right? And Mm -hmm. so if you're recombining old clues into new categories or new boards, like to me, you are doing the work that the writers are supposed Mm -hmm. to be doing so i i'm a little perplexed and yeah don't don't love how things are shaking out but we'll we'll see what happens we'll just have to make decisions as they as things come up yep yeah and so that's the end of the season and it's also the end of the week so this is the point in the show where we remind you we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to support us financially and you can find some exclusive content on there. Some has been promised. Yeah. (laughs) And will be there eventually. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) Think of it right when I'm recording. Yeah. As with so many things. Mm -hmm. Thinking of it when you can't do it. And then when you have the time, it's like never, ever going to come to mind. No. Never. But Um, hey, we've got a whole off season. That's right. We've yeah. we've got some we've got some some openings coming up. So you can go there to support us financially, and we very much appreciate those of you who are already doing that. You make it possible for us to continue doing this without having to, you know, take food from the mouths of our children mm-hmm. in order to provide this very important and necessary content. But if you think that there is more important or more necessary things for your money, we we agree. Yes, begrudgingly agree with you. So you can check out the show notes for some causes that we think are important. Emily. Yes, Kyle. What are your deep dive guesses? I'm going to come out of left field and say, are we talking about UFC? We are not talking about UFC. Darn it. Okay. How about George Bernard Shaw? Not George Bernard Shaw. Okay. How about Charles Sumner? Not Charles Sumner either. Those are all good guesses. There were a lot of good options this week. There were a lot of triple stumpers this week. There were a lot of good options, but I figured the last of the season, it's been a little while since I've done a music one. I wanted to to get a little closer to home for me and 
end the season on something that I realized I don't really know much about in the music world. So this is going back to the Monday game, that musical works category that every single one was incorrect or just missed. The $2,000 level. Each of the 10 movements of this Mussorgsky work represents a piece of an art display created by a late friend. That's pictures at an exhibition, which like I recognize the music and everything, but I realized I was like, I don't actually know much about this piece. Plus, this gives me an opportunity finally in a deep dive to actually talk about the mighty five Russian composers who I have mentioned a number of times already, but now I can, you know, get it off my chest and not have to talk about it ever again on the podcast. Great. So we're talking about pictures at an exhibition and a little bit about Modesta Mazorgsky, who was the composer of that. So pictures at an exhibition is a piano suite in 10 movements. So a suite in classical music and in Western music is an ordered set of instrumental pieces. And it originated during the Renaissance as kind of a collection of dance songs, dance tunes. And so each movement is standalone in a suite. They don't necessarily have to be musically related to each other. Unlike, I mean, other multi-movement works often have some kind of unifying factor, but a suite can simply be like, hey, here are three dances that I like, so I'm going to put them all together. And there you go. So that's what Pictures at an Exhibition is in that tradition. It is a piano suite in 10 movements. Uh, It also has a recurring and varied promenade theme that is kind of interspersed between the other like named movements. It's a musical depiction of a tour of an exhibition of works by architect and painter Victor Hartmann, put on by the Imperial Academy of Arts in St. Petersburg following Hartmann's sudden death the previous year. Some of the paintings or works are still around, and some of them have been lost. Um, but each named movement is based on a particular work, or one of them is based on two kind of paired works. It's become a showpiece for pianists, and it has been arranged and orchestrated a lot. Way more than I thought it had. Maurice Ravel's 1922 adaptation is the most prominent one, but there are a lot of different versions of pictures at an exhibition. So Victor Hartman is the architect and artist that the exhibition was was about for. Uh, he was born in St. Petersburg to a family of German ancestry. Uh, he was orphaned at a young age, grew up with his aunt and her husband, Alexander Hemilian, who was also a well-known architect, and he studied at the Academy of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg. He sketched the monument to the thousandth anniversary of Russia in Novgorod, which was inaugurated in 1862. He was one of the first artists to include traditional Russian motifs in his work. So this was mid-19th century Across the board, Europe is kind of engaged in this nationalism movement of, you know, rejecting the kind of cosmopolitan ideals of the earlier Enlightenment and and the people, you know, artists and and cultural movers and shakers looking more for creating a, a national identity among their art. And so he was part of that. He was introduced to the circle of composers known as the Five, who was kind of led by Mili Belakarev, and he became close friends with Modest 
Ozorgsky. Uh, he died of an aneurysm at the age of 39, 1973. And that is uh, why the exhibition was put on. Uh, they met in the home of the influential art critic Vladimir Stasov, who was also associated with the five. He was not necessarily an artist himself, but he was a critic. So his writings got out to a lot of people. And he was also one of the people in favor of this move toward nationalism. And so this search for a uniquely Russian musical sound or uniquely Russian artistic identity, that kind of thing. Mazorsky had found success in the years before, particularly with his opera, Boris Gudinov, which was a massively successful opera, probably like during his lifetime, his most, most successful work, definitely. Around the same time as Hartman's death, the mighty handful kind of fell apart. So for the previous decade or so, they had been kind of meeting and discussing like ways that they can create music that sounds Russian. What does it mean to sound Russian? How do you take what you ha what we have and make it sound unique to our cultural identity? Again, I've I've listed this out before. The mighty five or mighty handful were Mili Balakirev, who was a conductor and composer. He was known in his time, but at this point, historically, he's more seen as like his major importance was as the leader of this group and not so much in his compositions or things like that. Cesar Kui, who was a composer and a Russian army officer, he rose to the rank of engineer general. Modest Mussorgsky, who we're talking about, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who's probably the best known at this point of the composers. He was also one of the best orchestrators of the time. And then Alexander Borodin, who was a chemist by trade, by day, and a composer in his off time. They lived in St. Petersburg and collaborated from about 1856 to about 1870, at which point they kind of fell apart because they couldn't quite get on the same page about like, what is it we're really trying to do? What is the sound that we're really looking for? They just kind of got tired of each other and they each kind of went off to pursue their own path. So Hartman's death in August of 1873 shook Mazorgsky and others in Russia's art world. Mazorgsky was already feeling kind of isolated after the kind of like falling out with the mighty handful. And this made him, whether he was like clinically depressed or not, he was feeling pretty bad. The critic Stasov helped to organize a memorial exhibition of over 400 of Hartman's works at the Imperial Academy of Arts in uh, February and March 1874. And Mazorgsky, as he went through it and later in June of that year, he was inspired to compose pictures at an exhibition. So the pieces the different movements in pictures at an exhibition are starts with the promenade. So the promenade theme, uh, which I said, like I said, recurs uh, numerous times throughout. It's bum 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 bum, which you may have heard before. That's where it starts, and it's kind of like energetic and and big. The first named movement is the gnome which uh, is one of the lost pieces. We do not have that uh, particular painting anymore. It depicts a little gnome clumsily running around with crooked legs. It might represent, or it might have been a design for a nutcracker or something like that. Then we have another return of the promenade theme, but this time it has moved down. So before it was in B flat major, now it's in A flat major, and it's a little bit slower. 
Then we have the old castle. Davos's comment of the piece is a medieval castle before which a troubadour sings a song. The painting was thought to be a watercolor depiction of an Italian castle. Ravel's orchestration puts a bassoon and an alto saxophone duet in it. Now, obviously, like I said, this is a piano piece originally, so the original composition, it's all for piano. We don't need to worry about instrumentation. After the old castle, we get another promenade, this time in B major, uh, which moves it a little bit higher, a little bit brighter. Um, The third named movement is the Tuileries, or Children's Quarrel After Games. Uh, This is a depiction of an avenue in the garden of the Tuileries with a swarm of children and nurses. This movement is in ABA form. This is the first movement we get in like straight up 4-4. So, so far we've had a gnome, an old castle, and the Tuileries. Yeah, none of these paintings exist still, at least that we know of. After Tuileries, we get Bidlow, which is cattle. And this is slow and plodding. And if you're a tuba player, this is one of the best known pieces from the Ravel orchestration. Also, Rimsky-Korsakov's edition puts it in the in the tuba part as well. This is a, a well-known orchestral excerpt for them. It's a Polish cart on enormous wheels drawn by oxen. So the melody depicts the plodding ox just walking down the road. Then we get another promenade theme, this time in D minor. So this is the first time we hear the promenade theme in, in a minor key. So it is a little bit darker, a little bit more reflective. It's only 10 measures long, so it's not very long at all. Then we get the Ballet of Unhatched Chicks. This painting still is around, which appear to be sketches of theater costumes for the ballet Trilby. Trilby was a ballet in two acts and three scenes for the Bolshoi from 1870, I think, if I I recall correctly. I'm not really going to get into Trilby, but this painting is... Like I said, sketches of costumes of like people in eggs with bird head kind of wear on. It looks a little weird. <laughs> looks a little weird. This deep dive is turning out to be so much wackier than I anticipated. It, there's some stuff. There's some yeah. stuff. So anyway, yeah, this is Ballet of Unhatched Chicks. Yeah. So there's a lot of like a quick little what we call grace notes meant to sound like chicks in this particular movement. The sixth movement after the Ballet of the Unhatched Chicks is Samuel Goldenberg and Schmoil, Schmoil, also called Two Jews. This one is kind of slow. It's in B-flat minor. And these are two portraits. Uh, These two paintings had actually been given to Mussorgsky when Hartman was alive, and he contributed these to the exhibition. From what I read, it is probable that the title that they were displayed under use some derogatory terms. So we just refer to it apparently as Samuel Goldenberg and Schmoyle. That seems like a good choice. Right. And these, this, this movement uses an augmented second interval, which for those who don't know music theory, it is a wider distance between two notes in a scale than we're used to hearing. It doesn't really happen in our major scales and it usually doesn't happen in our minor scales unless you're doing harmonic minor, but it is a characteristic sound in what we consider kind of like traditional Jewish or Hebrew melodies. So when you hear that particular interval used in a melody, it'll probably elicit thoughts of that kind of music anyway. So that's how Mussorgsky kind of represented those characters in that. Then we get the promenade theme. This one 
is in B flat major. It's the kind of a restatement of what we had at the beginning. So it's kind of bringing us back home. Then we get to the seventh movement, which is Limoges, the market or the great news. This one is energetic. It's an E flat major, which is kind of like one of the biggest heroic keys. And it depicts French women quarreling violently in the market, apparently in, in France. It's very energetic, fast notes. The eighth movement is the catacombs or the Roman tomb. This is in B minor and it is slow. And this is Hartman representative himself examining the Paris catacombs by the light of a lantern. Yeah. And so this, this is slow with big, long chords meant to de depict kind of like stillness and grandeur. Movement nine, right after that, comes the hut on hen's legs or Baba Yaga. And so the fifth, sixth, eighth, ninth, and tenth movement, we still have paintings of. So we have the picture of the ballet of the unhatched chicks. Uh, we have the two portraits of, of Goldenberg and Schmoyle. We have the painting that is called the Catacombs. And then for this one, the hut on head's legs is actually a, a depiction of a clock that looks like Baba Yaga's hut, apparently. So it's not it's not just like a, a painting of a fairy tale scene. It's a painting of a clock that is based on the fairy tale scene. <laughs> yeah. So it's a scherzo, which is like a, a quick kind of dance, and it has a few different sections then and and motives in it are meant to depict bells of large clocks and sounds of a chase. We get finally to the tenth and last movement, and this is the Bogatyr gates in the capital of Kiev, or I've usually heard this movement called the Great Gate of Kiev. It's an E-flat major. It starts quick, and then it ends with maestoso con grandezza as the instructions, which means majestically with grandeur. It is a big triumphant finale to the whole movement. It is in rondo form, sort of which means it has an A theme that keeps coming back while other themes are interspersed. Its, its form goes like A, B, A, B, C, A, D, A, which is not a typical rondo, but it's like, I don't know what else you would call it. And then it, it has a, a coda at the end to kind of bring it all home. So that's that's the whole movement. And we also do have that painting of the, the Great Gate of Kiev. Yeah, I'm not going to talk a lot about the different orchestrations there were a bunch in 1886. There was an orchestration by Mikhail Tushmalov. In 1915, Henry Wood did one for the London Philharmonic. Like I said, Maurice Ravel's 1922 is really well known. And that's probably that's the one that gets played probably the most. After that would be the 1939 one by Leopold Stokowski, who you may know from the original Fantasia. He was the conductor for that. He was kind of the big name in the 1930s, 40s, as far as like conducting, he was associated with the Philadelphia Orchestra as well. Yeah, there are a bunch of others. It's been arranged for concert band and other ensembles as well. I'm not going to name any of the people who did it because you can find them and there are a lot. There have been stage adaptations of it, which is interesting to me. In 1928, the Russian artist Vasily Kandinsky created a stage show combining his own designs for the pictures with the performance of the piano score. There's a 2014 ballet based on the orchestral score for the New York City Ballet. So that's pictures at an exhibition. It is a prominent piece in Western classical music. 
It is a good one to know, and it is a list of things that you can just remember, which is good for trivia people. So there you go. Yeah. This has been a much wilder ride than I expected. Yeah, me too. I was like, when I started looking into it, I was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't really know. I don't remember all the movements. I don't really know the background of it. Like, I'm not a piano player. I haven't spent a lot of time with it. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting to learn about. Yeah. So are you ready for a quiz? Absolutely. I'm ready for a quiz. All right. The six questions are taken from six of the movements, or at least are themed on them. So they are not necessarily in order, but here's question one uh, on the theme of Gnome. What 2011 animated film with a punny title used the voice talents of James McAvoy and Emily Blunt in the title roles? They are garden gnomes from rival yards, yet they fall in love with the backdrop of Elton John songs. I think it must be Gnomeo and Juliet. It is Gnomeo and Juliet. Yes. I, I sat down and thought like, all right, I need to write a gnome question. And I was like, I don't have a lot of gnome knowledge to draw on. I have this movie I remember and Dungeons and Dragons. And I've asked about Dungeons and Dragons an awful lot. And I think I asked about David the Gnome. Oh, that's right. I think you did. Yes. Yeah. So really what I'm saying is I just need to learn more about gnomes. Mm-hmm. We all need nice. to learn more about gnomes. All right. Quick 10 points. Question two. The Great Gate of Kiev no longer stands, although there is a modern replica museum. Historical records refer to the Southern Gate of Kiev as the Golden Gate. It was probably built as an imitation of the Golden Gate in what other old city, which was part of the Theodosian Walls? Golden Gate in what other old city, part of the Theodosian Walls? Theodosian Walls being named for emperors Theodosius I and Theodosius II. Yeah. I'm not placing Emperors Theodosius the first and second. My first instinct was to go to like antiquity. But now I'm wondering if I should be thinking Russia. I think I should be thinking Russia. I don't know why. Okay. I think I'm going to guess either Moscow or St. Petersburg. Which one am I going to do? going to agonize over the coin flip and then it'll be neither of them let's say st petersburg good you didn't agonize over it it's constantinople oh yeah Yeah. that that makes more sense and i I, because i almost i changed the word from what other ancient city because i didn't want it to seem like the city is no longer around you know yeah but yeah, I was I was hoping Theodosius would would point you. It does now that now that you say Constantinople, I'm like, oh yeah, that that rings a bell. Yeah, apparently Kiev had this. You know, it was a walled city, and it had these these grand gates. There were three of them, and the Golden Gate was the southern one. That it's a, apparently important in like their their folklore and their you know legends of their of their own history. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Question three: Tuileries. 
The Tuileries Palace and Gardens have been a focal point for many events in French history, particularly during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic periods. Construction began in 1564 under the direction of what Queen Mother, known for her influence over French culture and politics, as well as her origins from a prominent Florentine family. Her husband was King Henry II of France, who died young, and she was the mother of Francis II and Charles IX and Henry III. I'm not bringing her name to mind. I keep thinking of different, like, Marie something, you know, Marie Antoinette, Marie Therese, but those are those are all later. Ooh. Yeah, I'm not coming up with a viable guess. I'm going to pass. Okay. This is Catherine de' Medici. Oh, of course it is. Catherine de' Medici. Yes. Yes. I needed uh, to get out of the French names. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, Henry II died unexpectedly and she moved her family to the Louvre palace and then was like i don't like it here i want a new place so she bought up all of the land where the tuileries now is from all of the you know common folk who were living there and built this massive palace and gardens or at least started it it wasn't finished for a long time yeah but yeah it, it has it has figured prominently there are paintings of napoleon on the throne and in the tuileries and things like mm-hmm. that so yeah it's a cool place All right, question four. Catacombs. It is said that the first place to be referred to as catacombs is supposedly where the bodies of the apostles Peter and Paul were interred. This set of tombs was found between the second and third milestones of what famous historical road which ran from Rome to Brindisi in southeast Italy? Ooh, there may be more than one famous... Roman road, but the Appian Way is the only one that I think I know the name of, so that's going to have to be my guess. And it's the only one you should know, because Good. it's the only one I know, and that means it's the only <laughs> one that's important. Yeah, that's that's how I like to think of things. Yeah. If I don't know it, it's because I don't need to. Mm-hmm. It is the Appian Way. Nice. Alright. Yeah, I was like looking up catacombs. There are a lot of catacombs in a lot of places. Alright, you're at 20 points. Back on track. Question 5. Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga is a witch from Eastern European folklore. Sometimes she is depicted as a villain, sometimes as a helper. Her hut is described as sitting upon a pair of chicken's legs, and she is associated with what other pair of objects? She flies around in one and wields the other. Likely the paired objects appear because of their association with herbal medicine, potion making, and alchemy. Paired like a traditional pair, like, you know, like peanut butter and jelly style pair, or it's just two objects. A, a traditional, like you usually refer to these two things okay. together, blank All and right. blank. Okay. I think mortar and pestle. It is mortar and pestle. Yay. Nice. Yes. She flies around in a magic mortal and whacks people with the pestle. <laughs> um, That's fun. <laughs> yeah. Bobby Yaga is an interesting interesting character in yeah folklore oh that's great uh, yeah all right cool you're at 30 points and the final question category is old castle huh i'm not that confident in old castles i'll wager 20 points okay for a total of 50 when you undoubtedly get it correct one of the world's oldest still-standing castles, possibly the oldest, 
is the citadel of what Middle Eastern city? That city featured prominently in the press during the recent Syrian civil war, and memorably for a political gaffe by a third-party presidential candidate. Oh, I don't know if I knew this city, like the citadel, but I... Mm. Syria plus third-party presidential candidate gaffe. I'm pretty sure we're talking about Aleppo. We are talking about Aleppo. But what is Aleppo? What? What's an Aleppo? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. The Citadel of Aleppo It is could, could possibly be the oldest still-standing castle in the world. Windsor Castle, apparently, is the oldest still-occupied castle. Hmm. Which I thought was interesting. It's nearly a thousand years old, which is which is interesting. Wow. But yeah. but the citadel goes back to like the third millennium BCE. So yeah, yeah, I came across that and thought that was pretty cool. So there you go, fifty points. Yay! Yay! Season thirty nine. We're wrapping it up. Yeah. Uh, so we have to talk about what our next steps are in terms of recording. But yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out and hopefully bring you some, I don't know, some fun stuff in the off season. Probably not on our exact regular schedule, but we try not to go completely silent. Yeah. And and we'll see what Jeopardy does. Yes, we will. With regard to season forty and the writer's strike. Mm-hmm. Much as I would love to have new episodes of Jeopardy, I have pretty negative feelings about them doing that for me during a writer's strike right i don't that that's not how i would have solved that particular dilemma but nope we'll see which direction they take it yep but hey season 39 it's been grand it has yeah thanks listeners for enjoying it with us make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that if you want to check out our patreon which is full of unfulfilled promises it's, <laughs> it's patreon.com slash potent potables i'll try and fulfill some of those promises <laughs> in the coming days and if you have friends who are into jeopardy i mean this is kind of a weird time to tell this them about our podcast but better now than never yeah we got a back catalog yeah there's there's lots they've got time to catch up mm-hmm. yeah you can all find us on facebook at potent potables on twitter at potent potables one our email address is potent at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. yeah and we'll be back probably not next week but you know sooner Eventually. or later yeah, yeah just subscribe so you know when we're back and until then may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker 